Scripture reading will be Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 19, 1 through 6. After this, I have heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her excuse me, immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you, Tim, for our reading tonight, and uh, thank you, Daniel, for leading our singing tonight. Such a beautiful job. And such a fine uh, job in reading. Uh, thank you very much for the prayers which have been offered tonight. And uh, it's always a joy for me to be able to worship with you. I say that every time I get up here because I mean it. I enjoy being with you. I enjoy singing these beautiful songs. And I enjoy the wonderful spirited way that you enter into our worship service. And it's so encouraging to me. I, I'm so happy to be with you. It's a great honor for me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I enjoy uh, doing that every time that we meet and being with you. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're having what we call a Sunday night seminar, and it's on the book Revelation. I prepared a handout. If you do not have one, all you have to do is raise your hand, and these good deacons will come by and give you a handout and let you follow along. Most of the information that I will give tonight will be on the handout. There'll be additional information, of course, that I, I give and discuss that uh, the handout does not provide. And I've tried to condense the information to a front and back page. And I've also had it uh, hole punched in the left margin, so it's easy for you. If you're like me, I like to keep all these things in, uh, in binders, but you might like to put them in a file folder. And that's uh, a good way to keep them, too, and I hope you will. I hope you'll go back, keep them, and as you come back to the book of Revelation and want to study it, that you'll want to pick up on these uh, outlines, and I hope that they're helpful to you. Uh, with the outline and with the, the slides and then the presentation uh, is a lot of material that we cover each Sunday night. And we've covered a lot of ground in the book of Revelation, and we come to chapter 19 tonight. One of my favorite pieces of music would have to be Handel's Messiah, and out of that would be Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. And I think most people have heard that uh, spine-tingling uh, piece of music, the Hallelujah Chorus. But most people perhaps do not realize that much of it was inspired by the 19th chapter of the book Revelation. And the hallelujahs that you have here in this particular chapter that Tim read for us tonight. Much of the wording of the hallelujah chorus by Handel came from the pages of the book of Revelation. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
He shall reign forever and ever. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. All these are the main lines of Handel's chorus, and they all come directly from the book of Revelation, most of them chapter 19. As you read uh, this particular passage, one of the words that stands out over and over again is the word hallelujah. So if I may, let's pause just for a moment. Let me talk a little bit about that very interesting Hebrew word. Uh, You know the difference, because you and I have talked about it before, between translation and transliteration. Transliteration is taking a word from an ancient language, let's say in this context Hebrew, and carrying it over letter for letter into the English language. So the Hebrew letter He corresponds to our H, and the Lamed corresponds to our L, and so eventually the word gets spelled hallelujah by transliteration. However, to translate the word, we'd have to translate it praise God or praise Jehovah. And in most of the Bible, it's translated that way. Turn with me to just a couple of um, passages as I think about them. From the book of Psalms, you see it a lot. I think I'll go to Psalm 148, and in that passage, uh, you'll notice. uh, Here it is in Psalm 146, praise the Lord. Well, the Bible translators translated hallelujah. They translated it as they should, praise the Lord. Notice Psalm 147, it starts off, praise the Lord. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Psalm 149, Praise the Lord. These are hallelujahs. They're Old Testament uh, passages which have the word hallelujah in them. And the word hallelujah means praise the Lord. When they got to Revelation 19, they left the Hebrew word and transliterated it, hallelujah. Uh, We use the word hallelujah quite a bit. Even in our own uh, type of uh, everyday language, we'll hear the word hallelujah as a great moment of joy. Uh, I suppose we ought to be careful how we use that word because the word actually means praise God. And we certainly don't want to be put in a position where we'd be taking the Lord God's name in vain in any way. Uh, But even in our singing, we'll see that word, hallelujah. Uh, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. It's one of my favorite songs. The song's a little redundant there because you're saying hallelujah, and in Hebrew it means praise God. And then in English, you're saying, praise Jehovah. So you're saying, praise God, praise Jehovah, (laughs) right over. And most of us don't even realize what we're singing there when we sing hallelujah. But it's a wonderful song, and I love it. And our very talented song leaders will lead it from time to time. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. It's one of my favorite songs. It means praise, praise to God. As we see from the pages of the Bible, you and I have been studying on Sunday morning about worship. God deserves our praise. When it says praise the Lord or praise God, He is deserving of it. Let me go back to an Old Testament psalm. Uh, I think I'll go to Psalm 150 and just describe just for a brief moment why we praise Jehovah. Bible writers tell us to praise Jehovah for two very important reasons. For who He is and what He has done. Both of these elements come up in Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. That's our word, hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for. Why do we praise Him? His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to. 
His excellent greatness. Why do we praise God? We praise Him for who He is. He's God, His excellent greatness. We praise Him for what He's done, His wonderful deeds. Both of those elements come up in Revelation 19 tonight. Praising God, hallelujah to God, for who He is and what He has done. And the passage makes very clear in chapter 19 tonight, He's brought judgment upon the wicked, and He's brought them down because of their terrible wickedness. He has remembered the cry of the faithful, and in turn, He's answered their prayer. In fact, chapter 19 is answer to what they were told to do in chapter 18. In Revelation 18 and 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The her is, of course, the harlot riding on the scarlet beast, which we identified as the Roman Empire. The worldliness of that empire, the worldliness of that culture, as an enemy of the people of God and as an enemy of the church of God, God in turn has brought judgment upon her, brought her down for their, her wickedness, and now he's telling who? Saints and apostles and prophets rejoice over this. Revelation 18 and 20. And so they do. Revelation 19 and 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! What a great word. I love that word. Praise God. For what? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation. Praise God for salvation. I'm sure in this particular matter he's saying praise God because he has saved us. Saved us from our sins. He's called us saints over there in 18 and 20. We are there in turn the saints of God because we have received the forgiveness of our sins. As Ananias told Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, and what a great thought that is. God has forgiven us of our sins. And may we never forget how wonderful forgiveness really is. The joy of divine forgiveness. And there in turn, God's wonderful grace and my obedient faith have joined together to bring about the washing away of sin. And I'm grateful for that. Salvation. How? From the terrible persecution that the Christians were facing through the Roman Empire, a tyrannical world government. Uh, they were a hard-fisted, heavy-handed, tyrannical government that persecuted the church. You'll remember the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea rose up as we studied. It was a world government, a Roman cultural uh, atmosphere whereby it brought persecution and suffering upon faithful children of God. And then, of course, to reinforce that was the beast of the land, sometimes called in the book the false prophet. And that false prophet was teaching them a lie and preaching to them, telling them that they ought to worship the beast of the sea, all of them emissaries and stooges for the old red dragon, which we read earlier in chapter 12. They were enemies of the people of God. God's going to bring them to account now, and He's going to judge them. God has delivered us from that persecution, which the beast of the land and the beast of the sea was bringing upon the saints of God. God's heard the plea of his people. Hallelujah! God's bringing them down. And he's bringing his judgment upon these uh, wicked ones. 
And of course, this tells us and reminds us of the final victory that will be ours as we in turn open our hearts and are obedient to the will of God and look for that wonderful place the Bible calls heaven. Uh, Hallelujah! That we will receive salvation and glory and power which belongs to God. God has given us the salvation. And I think each one of these words, salvation, glory, and power, all connected with God, praising God for His salvation, salvation from sin, salvation from the persecution they were facing in that terrible day and time, the hope of eternal life, which is theirs because of their faithful obedience. There they're praising God for His judgments, verse 2, are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. You know, it's one thing to be bad yourself, and it's another thing to, to influence somebody else to be bad. Uh, it's one thing to do the wrong thing, and it's one thing to be guilty of sin, but it's quite another thing to encourage and motivate others to be guilty of sin. And so he tells us in verse 2, this is why God's bringing them down. They not only were guilty of sin, they encouraged others to do the same thing. For his judgments are true and just, For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, with her wicked lifestyle, with her wicked way of living. He's talking about the Roman world. God's bringing judgment upon that Roman world because of her disgraceful way of life. The second hallelujah comes in verse 3. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It is a complete destruction which comes about. He's destroying the beast of the sea. He's destroying the beast of the land called the false prophet. Turn with me to Revelation 20 because we're just about in that particular chapter. Notice in verse 10 how he describes their demise. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's describing the destruction of this wicked world empire. He's describing the destruction and the doom of the false prophet, the beast of the land. has two names, the beast of the land and the false prophet, one and the same. Then there's the beast of the sea, which was the Roman government, a tyrannical type of government, which was very fierce and persecuted the children of God and the Christians of the first century. And that's their end result. God's destroying them. And notice about that. They have a conscious existence over there. The devil's going to be cast in with them. The lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They're going to be cast in there in chapter 19. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end result of those who try to do their best to war against God and wage against God. And I've said this many times and I'll still say it. Because I see it over and over and over again. If you fight against God, you're going to lose. If you fight against God, you're a loser. You are a loser. I was trying to teach my daughter and my son, which I did, do not smoke cigarettes. I don't want you smoking cigarettes. I grew up, I didn't smoke cigarettes. I don't want you smoking cigarettes. I don't want you doing it. Well, there's never really much of a temptation for them. They grew up under the direction of a strong father who said, you're not going to smoke cigarettes. And we would give some discussion about it, and I'd try to explain to them, I don't want you smoking cigarettes. It's not right, Christian. 
Christian boy, Christian girl doesn't need to be smoking cigarettes. Leave that stuff alone. And I said, people who smoke cigarettes are losers. And my daughter thought, you know, that's, that's a little strong. But she said, yeah, that's right, Daddy. She's just little. So we're in a restaurant. And in the area, uh, we're sitting in a restaurant, and somebody lights up. And they're smoking a cigarette in the restaurant. She says, see there, Daddy? He's a loser. He's a loser. And they said, out loud, you know. And I okay, that's right. That is right. From here on out, we're going to take our index finger and our thumb, and we're just going to go like this, okay? Let's just go like this, and don't shout out to the whole restaurant, he's a loser, he's a loser. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to shout it out tonight, anybody who fights against God is a loser. You're going to lose. And that's what we learn from Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then this third hallelujah comes upon the scene in verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now we have this great chorus. He says in verse 4, the 24 elders, we've studied them before, and the four living creatures. And it does seem that by verse 4 he's talking about those in heaven are praising God, the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. But then you have in verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, which leads us to believe that he's talking about the church of the Lord on earth, those who are the people of God on earth, those who are the created spiritual beings in heaven, join in this heavenly chorus, hallelujah, praise God, because God has brought judgment upon the wicked. Now, we're talking about the problem that they faced in the Roman Empire. But as you and I have done through the course of this book, this could be applied to any world government who tries to rear its ugly head up against an omnipotent, almighty God. It doesn't matter when in the world history it might try to come up and rise up against God and try to work against God. They're going to be destroyed. Though I think particularly in this context, he's talking about Rome. And he's talking about the culture of Rome and the Roman Empire. But it could be any world government. Their fate is going to be the same no matter when in history they might rise up or any wicked leader with regard to that matter. The same will be the result. And the people of God, the saints on earth, and the created spiritual beings in heaven, praise God and sing hallelujah for his wonderful judgment has come upon them. Then in verse 6, I pulled this verse together with the fourfold hallelujah because, I do, because of the word hallelujah occurring in the verse. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And I put that verse in this section. It helps me remember that, and I called it the fourfold hallelujah. Because the word hallelujah is given to us, the transliterated word is given to us four times in this particular section where those of heaven and those on earth are praising God for his great judgment. But then, then comes a very important scene as John describes it for us, beginning in verse 7. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory... For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Now let me explain just a little bit about this imagery. Often in the pages of the Bible, you're going to find prophets, also inspired apostles of the New Testament, describing the people as the bride of God. Particularly in the Old Testament, the bride of God, the bride of Israel, Isaiah chapter uh, 40, chapter 54, as well as Jeremiah chapter 31. And then Paul makes reference to this matter in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is the bride of Christ. And then you have that discussion in Matthew chapter 25 about the marriage feast. And what this imagery is about really is one belonging to the other. The people of God belong to God. Uh, They are in an espousal type relationship. Uh, Perhaps 2 Corinthians, and I thought of this passage earlier, will help us in this matter. And Paul makes reference to it, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm looking at about um, verse 2, and then I'll try to explain even more about it. For I feel a divine jealousy, Paul says, for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He uses the word in this English Standard Version, betrothed. And that is the relationship that we have to Christ. We belong to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Him. A betrothal is a stronger relationship than a modern-day type of engagement. You know, when you decide the two of you want to get married, you're involved in it, we want to be engaged. We're engaged to each other. And there may be the exchanging of rings, and there may be the exchanging of promises, but it's an engagement type of thing. But things could turn out whereby someone says, you know, I don't want to be married to you, and they break off the engagement. And they're free to do that at any time that they choose because they're not really bound to each other as yet. It is an engagement. But a betrothal was different. Uh, betrothal in New Testament times was a, a binding relationship between the two. Though the two could not come together and have marriage privileges with each other, still they were considered to be married and for, married and for one to break the engagement or the betrothal they would have to go through the writing of a divorcement. So it was a stronger binding relationship than what we might have today as an engagement. And here he's talking about that. You're invited to come to the marriage feast. And as it boils down, the marriage feast simply means heaven itself. You're invited to go to heaven, to be with the bridegroom. The bride and the bridegroom are joined together and have full relationship with each other as husband and wife, and so it is with the children of God, that we're espoused to Christ, and we're preparing ourselves for the great marriage feast, whereby we will be with the bridegroom forever and forever. It is a metaphor to teach us about the relationship that we have with Christ. And I think what I'll do is turn just very briefly to Matthew chapter 25 and cite a little bit, though I don't have a lot of time, Uh, this particular matter of the marriage feast as it comes up in Revelation chapter 19. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, 25 and 1, ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, 
Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, verse 10, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. The point that Jesus is making is prepare. Here the people of God are to prepare themselves for the marriage of the bridegroom. We see that imagery carried over into Revelation 19. And as I said, basically he's talking about heaven itself and is a wonderful occasion. Saints of God are invited to the marriage feast, which means Christ comes and we go to heaven. Let us rejoice, verse 7, and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So naturally he's talking about the church and the bridegroom, Christ, coming together, having full fellowship with each other in that place called heaven. And it is an important uh, invitation, as we see in verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is that situation whereby the children of God are now in full fellowship with God himself and with the Christ who gave his life to make all of this possible. Now when John sees this and he hears this, he falls at the angel's feet. And he begins to worship the angel, but he said, now don't do it. Then I fell down at the feet to worship him, verse 10, but he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, angels are not to be worshipped. Dead saints are not to be worshipped. Ancestors are not to be worshipped. We are to worship God. And I suppose filled with the enthrallment of the scene and all of the imagery and the vividness of it as John is carried away in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and he sees all this great imagery involved in the marriage feast of the Lamb and the joy of it and the praise of it and and the children of God being united with the Christ of God. Then in turn he falls down before the angel's feet to worship him, but the angel says, don't do it. Don't worship me. I'm a servant like you are. Angels are created beings like we are. Angels are created spiritual beings. We are created physical beings. We are both created to do the will of God. One in a spiritual sphere, one in a physical sphere. And this angel, wise angel said, do not worship me. Worship God. I suppose there's always a tendency to worship the wrong thing. We've got to be careful there. Do not worship the wrong thing. Worship the right being, which is God. He alone is worthy of our worship. And so we worship Him, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He talks about the spirit of prophecy. I'd love to talk more about that. But basically he's saying there, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit gave the revelation, and they in turn received it, and thus uh, spoke that revelation from the pages of the Bible. He is referring to heaven itself. Now, another feast is coming, and I'll just warn you in advance. We had the marriage feast of the Lamb, verse 9, but we're going to have another feast, verse 17, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. 
there's a paragraph here you and I need to understand. And it's the third paragraph that finds itself in this chapter, beginning in verse 11. Now the Son of God comes from heaven, and the door is opened, and he rides on a mighty white horse. His name is Faithful and True. In fact, you'll find four names that are given to the Son of God. Faithful and True, verse 11. And then a name that only he would know, verse 12. And then verse 13, he is the Word of God. And then in verse 16, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there is no doubt in our mind and in our thinking to whom the passage is referring to. And what's happening here is now the king is executing his judgment. And you and I studied about this matter uh, before, how that they would uh, fall before uh, and, and rise up against uh, God and God's Word and God's teaching and fall before it. And so now God is a militant leader. His son, Jesus Christ, riding on the white horse, is thus bringing judgment upon the wicked, bringing judgment upon the beast of the sea, bringing judgment upon the false prophet, the beast of the land. And the old devil's going to get his a little later in the next chapter. Then I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, penetrating, you see. And on, the, on his head are many diadems, the universality of his authority. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I don't believe it's his own blood. I believe it is the blood of his enemies as he comes to execute judgment on the wicked. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. To his saints he is like a loving shepherd. To the wicked he is like a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, wrath of God the Almighty. You ought to mark that. The fury of the wrath. Two important words are used in that particular passage, verse 15. Uh, thumus, thumos is a particular word there that says it is a hot boiling anger. It's a hot boiling anger. But there's another word that's used in that particular passage, wrath, and it is designated, deliberate, and planned. It's not just an emotional outburst. All of a sudden he gets mad. But it's very deliberate, very calculated, boiling, white, hot heat of God's wrath. That's what they receive. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And these words are important words, and we dare not pass over them. We should understand that with the Word of God, the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from His mouth, He will judge the world without, uh, without respect of persons. If you've been obedient to the will of God, one of the saints, the children of God then you will escape this terrible judgment which he has in store for all the wicked. Once again, keep in mind, I think specifically he's talking about the Roman Empire. But by application, I don't want to face that. By application, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we're all going to have to face the judgment of God, and I don't want that white-hot fury of his wrath. What I want is his grace and his mercy, which I can have by my faithful obedience to the will of God and by living of the faithful Christian life. And then I'm at verse 17. 
The birds are called to the flesh, to eat the flesh. And what do they eat? They eat the flesh of the fallen. Uh, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. I'm in Revelation 19 and 17. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. Uh, Here's a second feast. Now you noticed earlier we had the great marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. That was a wonderful occasion. That was a joyous occasion where everybody, all the saints of God came together and there were in fellowship with the, the bridegroom. The king has come and they are filled with joy. But here is another occasion. The great supper of God is um, uh, the destruction of the wicked. And the birds of the air come and eat the flesh of the fallen. That is the Roman Empire. That is the culture. All the kings associated with them. The beast of the sea. The, uh, of all who followed the beast of the sea and the beast of the land are fallen. And it says in verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, uh, and uh, their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Whoever you happen to be, if you're involved in that, if you're with Rome and following the way of Rome, then that's the end. And somebody, one of my, like one of my kids would say one time, yuck. And that's probably a good description of what you have, verses 17 through 18. Yuck! Um, You know, it's not one of our favorite pictures to see, and that is uh, birds of prey coming and eating uh, the flesh of that which has fallen. Now, we can decide which dinner you want to be at. You can decide whether you will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 9, and be an honored guest there, or you can decide to be an entree in verse 17, 18, uh, in the, the great supper of God's wrath and God's fury. And that's the parallel that's being presented for us. The beast and the false prophet by verse 19 through 21 are doomed. And again, let me briefly say, uh, the beast of the sea, false, I mean a wicked world government persecuting the people of God. And then the false prophet, the beast of the land, forcing the people to worship the beast of the sea. Emperor worship, you see, forcing them to worship the emperor as God. And there in turn, when you did not, you had to face terrible consequences which um, were before them. But God now brings them to judgment. And when you see first century Christians who are facing life and death situations every single day, read this. They're encouraged by the fact God's in control. God's in control. These are hard, hard times. These are terrible times because faithful Christian people are being persecuted to death for what they believe, but God's in control. And so John would write what Jesus revealed and give to the churches, and they would read it, and they would feel encouragement over the fact that this paganism which Rome promotes is going to be brought down. Yes, I'll face persecution, I may face suffering, I may even face death, but God's still in control. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him that was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I'll say it again. If you want to fight against God, you're going to lose. And I don't want to have to face that. Surrender to God. And Paul in Romans chapter 5 He's telling us about, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, justified by faith. We have peace with God. Sign the peace treaty with God. Don't fight against Him. Study what it means to be a Christian from the pages of the New Testament and do it. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Confess your faith in Christ. Do not fight against God. Don't fight against His way. Now, he's talking about symbolic terms here. These are very symbolic images that are given. You know, God does not have a stable of white horses in heaven. Uh, God doesn't have a group of birds flying around up there in heaven waiting to jump upon the dead carcasses of the enemy. This is not to be taken literally. These are symbolisms. These are symbolic references that help us understand great points. But even though we're not to take it literally, That does not mean we should not take it seriously. We should take these images very seriously because they tell us how the end will be. Any regime, any system that fights against God loses. I don't care what it calls itself. You will not win. You will lose. Any world leader, he may seem to be so powerful, just like Nero Caesar was so powerful, or Domitian, who actually had the nerve to call himself the Lord God, Domitian decrees, one of the emperors of Rome. Can you imagine the arrogance of a man that would say that? But I guess he actually believed it. He actually believed that he was Lord God. It doesn't matter if a man got up there and he actually said that or believed that. He's going to be a loser because God's going to bring him to judgment. So just because they're not to be taken literally does not mean we should not take them seriously and help us understand how important it is to be faithful to God and to continue to have hope, hope of eternal life, which carries us throughout this life and on into eternity. I'm not, a, I'm not an artistic type of guy. I, I really don't um, know much about it. Uh, sometimes, though, some art really grabs me. And when I was out in California, Carol and I went to several art museums, and I've been to different ones, and I don't know. A lot of it I don't care for. You know, I'm just not trained in the area. But this one grabbed me. And sometimes it happens that way. This portrait was uh, painted by an English painter, Sigismund Getz. Let me tell you a little bit about this painting. Sigismund a painter, very popular, very capable, paints this painting. When I saw that, immediately it hit me, what he had in his mind. And if you look at this particular painting, now he's not inspired. He's just an artist, very gifted man. But he has Jesus there with his crown of thorns on his head. But Jesus is standing there in a busy street. And if you notice... The faces of all these people, they're looking in other directions. They're not looking to Christ. 
And they're from different classes of society. They're from different cultures and I'm sure different uh, uh, brackets of education and economic ability and that kind of thing. But everybody's going their own way and everybody's doing their own thing. And they're not looking to Christ, but they're looking everywhere but Christ. Nobody's looking to Jesus. And when I saw that painting in California for the first time, I thought, wow, I get it. That's man. Man's looking everywhere but where he should be looking. Man is looking here. Man is looking there. Man is doing this. Man is doing that. Men and women are so involved in daily pursuits of life when they really ought to be studying the life of Christ and what he means to us and why God sent him and how I should respond to him to be his child because the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming one great day. Christ is coming. And you can either be invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb and be an honored guest as a faithful child of God, or you can be eaten by the buzzards, by the wrath of God, which is but a symbolism to tell us of what destruction and hell is really going to be like. I believe that that painting captures the spirit of modern America. We're so involved in everything else but the thing we ought to be involved in. And that is faithfulness to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And singing hallelujahs to God Almighty. If you're not a child of God tonight, I urge you to become one. Don't make this mistake right here. Focus your attention on Christ. Repent of your sins. Be obedient to the gospel of Christ as you read it from the pages of the Bible. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Let the blood of Christ wash away those sins and become a faithful child of God for the rest of your life. If you're not a faithful child of God, repent of that, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Dedicate your life to the cause of Christ again. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.